focus on headline. All right, let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines today on Focus on Headline. For this, joining us in the studio, we have our usual Wednesday reporters in Tandan and Yune Jung. Guys, welcome back. Good evening. Good evening to you guys. We're going to continue on with the visits over to the Middle East by President Yoon Sagyar. He is on his fourth day of his visit there. Uh, there, the South Korean leader wrapped up his Saudi trip at the Future Investment Initiative Forum, uh, where he continued his sales efforts. He believe uh, he mentioned once again that him being the number one salesman in Korea. Uh, he also called South Korea a reliable partner for Saudi Arabia. And after leaving Saudi Arabia, President Yoon started his visit, state visit to Qatar. Hejong, you're going to start us off. Uh, let's get the latest in his uh, visit to Middle East. What do you have for us? Right. The last item on President Yoon's visit to Saudi Arabia was the Future Investment Initiative, which is also dubbed as Davos in the Desert. At this event, President Yoon Sagar appeared as a special guest, walking in with Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. President Yoon used the event stage to promote South Korea to the participants of 6,000 global business and finance leaders, including the CEOs of JP Morgan and Citigroup. He also explained that while South Korea started with infrastructure construction in the Middle East, it's now leading in new technologies, including batteries, semiconductors, and EVs, while emphasizing that people-to-people -people changes will also play an important role in keeping the momentum going for the bilateral relations. And shortly before the event, Crown Prince Ben Salman made a surprise visit to the guest house where President Yoon was staying. And after a friendly chat, President Yoon sat next to the driver's seat in the car driven by Crown Prince Ben Salman himself and moved to the venue together. Now, after wrapping up his trip at Saudi Arabia, President Yoon made a state visit to Qatar shortly thereafter, first heading to a large-scale international horticultural expo, the first of its kind in the desert region. He visited the Korean pavilion, which showcased an outdoor garden with Korean themes and a smart farming exhibition hall, promoting the country's capabilities in the field. And he also used this visit as a chance to encourage Korean entrepreneurs venturing into the Middle East. Now, on the second day of his visit to Qatar, the South Korean leader will have a summit and a luncheon with Amir Tamim and take part in the Korea-Qatar Business Forum. Now, Qatar is a nation which will celebrate the 50th anniversary of diplomatic relations with Korea next year and is Korea's second largest LNG supplier. So the presidential office stated that the goal of the visit is to expand cooperation in diverse fields centered on energy and construction, while including areas such as advanced technology, defense, and agriculture. I have to say uh, that uh, photo op uh, of uh, President Yoon Sagar and uh, Crown <laughs> Prince Mohammed bin Salman in that car. Uh -huh. I was, was kind of looking through and seeing what kind of car he drives, as you know, uh, Mohammed bin Salman being amongst one of the richest people uh, in the world. Certainly was a great honor and uh, shows you uh, the hospitality that was being shown uh, by the Crown Prince to President Yoon Sagyar. Uh, also ahead of his trip to Doha, President Yoon vowed to expand uh, bilateral ties with Qatar to areas beyond energy and constructions, uh, such as defense, agriculture, and people-to-people -people exchanges. Tom, let's get more on this. Sure. His remarks were made during a written interview with 
Qatar news agency that was published on Tuesday. President Yoon stressed that Korea and Qatar should at this stage further build upon what they've achieved over the last five decades to usher in an even brighter future. He also emphasized that it holds much significance to be the first Korean president to make a state visit to Qatar, noting he will have in-depth discussions on the future of the two countries' bilateral relationship when he meets with the emir of Qatar, Sheikh Tamim bin Hamad al-Tani. President Yoon expressed hopes that this visit will serve as an invaluable opportunity to uh, to elevate bilateral relations to a new level, more specifically, the non-traditional areas of cooperation, encompassing investment, defense, agriculture, and culture industries, as well as people-to-people exchanges. President Yoon highlighted that over the past half a century, Korea and Qatar have been working together for each other's advancement and prosperity, especially in the energy and construction sectors, pointing out that Qatar, as Korea's second largest supplier of LNG, has helped Korea maintain and secure its uh, energy security despite uh, against all the odds coming from the restructuring of global supply chains. He detailed that Korea has participated in approximately 130 construction projects in Qatar, including the building of the National Museum of Qatar, uh, Losail Plaza Towers, and other landmarks, which now serve as symbols of the friendship and cooperation between the two countries. And now he said that uh, the Korean government intends to expand the scope of the cooperation, moving beyond the fields of energy and construction to include uh, cooperation programs, which will bring more tangible benefits for the people as well of both countries. And to this end, he promised to nurture a broader range of channels for strategic bilateral communication. President Yoon's two-day visit comes as the countries are set to mark the 50th anniversary of establishing ties next year. Uh, President Yoon also zoomed in on the heightened interest in each other among the younger generations, citing uh, some universities in Qatar offering Korean language courses and Korea's increased interest in Qatar as well since uh, the country's hosting of the FIFA World Cup last year. He said that such vibrant interactions between younger generations will lead to closer-knit bilateral relations across diverse fields. There is a great deal of, uh, I guess, influence in the global economy now in the Middle East. And, uh, you know, already countries like, for example, the UAE and uh, Saudi Arabia we talked about in Qatar. Anton, one of the very few people that I've met now who properly pronounces Qatar. I even, <laughs> I still, I'm still, I always say Qatar still. Qatar, right, that's the proper pronunciation of the country, is one of the fastest growing Middle East countries right now. And as President Yoon Sagar, of course, I mean, there was a number of issues at hand why he has made this uh, trip to the Middle East, uh, including the ongoing conflict uh, it, it, with, between Israel and Hamas. But there is so much business to be gained at this time right now. And again, I emphasize President Yoon Sagar keep coming out and saying that He's South Korea's number one businessman. There's certainly a lot, which is why you're seeing a growing number of delegation visiting uh, the two Middle Eastern countries, along with President Yoon Sagir. We've already talked about the number of MOUs and agreements in place in Saudi Arabia. We're going to see this also with Qatar as well. As we get more on this, we'll give all of our listeners out there a final rundown. And of course, uh, at the second hour of the program, we are going to be connecting with Professor Yi Yun uh, to talk about the significance of President Yoon's visit to the Middle East.
Let's move on here today on Wednesday. Uh, South Korea's Minister of Patriots and Veterans Affairs, Park Min-sik, uh, attended a memorial service marking the 80th year uh, since the passing of the independence activist Hong Bam-do, uh, this amid a heated ideological dispute over his ties uh, to Soviet communist forces. Hejung, uh, let's get more on this. Right. Today, a remembrance ceremony was held at the Daejeon National Cemetery, where General Hong Bom-do's body lies with some 100 people attending the event, including Veterans Affairs Minister Park Min-sik. Now, independent activist Hong Bom-do became the subject of the ideological dispute after the Defense Ministry said in August it was considering relocating his busts from its headquarters and the Korea Military Academy, both in Seoul, citing his past record of collaborating with Soviet forces. At the memorial service, uh, Minister Park praised General Hong for spearheading historic victories in battles at Pongodong and Cheongsanri in 1920, fighting for Korea's liberation under Japanese colonial rule. Hong also led Korean independence forces in the major battles in Manchuria in 1920 and moved to the Soviet Union the following year to seek refuge from Japanese forces. And the government's stance is that the relocation of the bust and the National Memorial of General Hong are two separate matters. Now, initially, the ministry informed reporters that Yoon Jong-jin, the vice minister of Veterans Affairs, would attend but the plan was changed to Minister Park Min-sik attending himself. The Ministry of Veterans Affairs claims that the bust of General Hong, who was a member of the Soviet Communist Party in his later years, is not really appropriate to be on the grounds of an army base that is supposed to counter North Korea, but stated that his victories over Japanese forces have been fully honored, adding that anti-Japanese achievements should be honored in places like the Independence Hall of Korea. Now, meanwhile, the opposition Democratic Party and advocates for independence fighters are strongly protesting against the push for the relocation, while the Korea Military Academy plans to remove the bust of General Hong by November 2nd. Again, the issue of relocating uh, General Hong's bus from the military academy was a huge, uh, huge controversy. And even, uh, I believe, the current uh, new defense minister in Shin Won-shik has come out during his uh, confirmation hearing, did not deny. Again, all the officials have to kind of tread carefully uh, because the legacy of Hong Kong-do is there, right? I mean, he is a liberation fighter. He is a hero in that front. But there, of course, is that controversy over him joining the Soviet Communist Party and so forth. And one of the things that uh, then-nominee Shin Won-shik had said uh, was that it's not necessarily because of his legacy that's controversial somewhat, but he sort of kind of criticized the former Moon administration, saying that he had unilaterally made, made the decision to put the bus there without the consultation of the military academy and so kind of went around it right and so still after all these years it's still good to the, uh, see that uh despite the controversy surrounding Hongbom, though there was a commemoration uh, event taking place uh let's move on to other issues here unionized uh, bus drivers in Gyeonggi-do province are holding negotiations with the management as we speak demanding a pay raise and better working conditions now if the two sides uh, fail to reach an agreement by tonight uh, drivers are expected to go on a full strike, which will impact nearly 
80% of the bus operations in the province. Uh, Talon, what do we know so far? Let's get the latest updates. Right. The meeting began just about two hours ago, and not much has been revealed so far. But what we know, though, is that over 9,500 out of some 10,650 buses, or 89% of the total number of buses operating in Gyeonggi province, may stop running from 4 a.m. tomorrow as unionized bus drivers warned of a full strike beginning Thursday if their demands are not accepted during today's meeting. Some 16,000 unionized members are expected to take part. For our listeners living in Gyeonggi province, make sure to stay updated to this news before you head out for uh, your morning commute tomorrow. The results may uh, very likely come out very late this evening, uh, perhaps even later uh, than midnight. The Gyeonggi-do Bus Workers Union Council, representing the unions of 52 bus companies in Gyeonggi-do, are holding talks with the Gyeonggi Province Bus Transport Business Association as we speak, demanding a pay raise and better working conditions. But if we look closer into the details, it's a bit more complicated than just a pay raise. The two sides met to strike a deal in September last year, but their talks fell through. But a general strike was averted last year because then Gyeonggi Governor Kim Dong-yeon walked in and promised to introduce a semi-public system for all bus routes in Gyeonggi within his term. Amid high hopes that the semi-public system would lead to higher pay and a more stable working environment, unionized bus drivers withdrew their plan for a general strike. But the promise was not kept, and Gyeonggi Province announced a delay until 2027, citing budgetary reasons. So bus drivers are now up in arms, saying there's there's not even a guarantee that the semi-public system will be implemented come 2027. And uh, the management side is also not budging an inch, saying a pay raise is not possible without implementation of the semi-public system and financial support from the government. So a long, bumpy road uh, is expected ahead tonight, and the Gyeonggi province plans to set up an emergency transportation response headquarters tomorrow that will operate under a 24-hour emergency working system should the talks fall through. Some 400 chartered buses will also be injected to the busiest stations tomorrow to mitigate disruptions. Yeah, it's uh, still Gyeonggi uh, Governor uh, Kim Dong-yeon. He's come out, I believe, uh, recently saying that uh, he's going to do all he can to avert a major strike. But it's big because we forget that Gyeonggi is a huge geographically it's huge it covers a large chunk of uh, the metropolitan area and especially because we've talked about in the past uh, you know real estate prices being so expensive in Seoul a lot of people have moved out uh, to Seoul into areas in the Gyeonggi region whether it be the Koyang region uh, even where I live in Anyang Yongin all those places they're all linked to uh, so all those buses head over to Seoul for a lot of the people that are commuting and so you're looking at a large number of commuters who are going to be impacted by this and they're saying that potentially this would be even bigger if the Seoul bus drivers uh, kind of had a uh, have a, a general strike as well and so you could kind of see the gravity of this we'll try to get the latest updates on this and hopefully 
hopefully uh, the commuters would not be impacted too much uh, in regards to this particular uh, negotiation talks that are currently going. We've been talking about the lumpy skin disease amongst the cattle here in South Korea. South Korea's agricultural ministry said Wednesday that it plans to complete the vaccination of cattle against the LSD or lumpy skin disease by early next month. Uh, this in order to contain the nationwide spread of the disease. Hejung, let's get the latest updates on this. Right. The announcement came as confirmed lumpy skin disease cases in cattle rose to 29 as of Wednesday morning, with health authorities expecting additional confirmed cases in the coming weeks. The Central Disaster Management Headquarters has decided to introduce an additional 4 million doses of vaccine for lumpy skin disease to be administered at cattle farms across the country by early next month in an effort to stabilize the outbreak uh, uh, early on. So first, 1.27 million doses of the vaccine will be introduced by this Saturday, followed by another 2.73 million doses by October 31st, totaling up to 4 million additional doses. And currently, 540,000 vaccine doses that were secured in advance is used for vaccination in farms near outbreaks of the lumpy skin disease. And until the vaccination is completed, the Central Disaster Management Headquarters plans to restrict the movement of cattle from farms adjacent to where the disease occurred. Now, Korea has reported its first-ever outbreak of the disease last Friday, and since then, confirmed cases have been on the rise. And according to the Agricultural Ministry, um, considering the three weeks needed to develop protective antibodies against the disease, if the nationwide vaccination program is completed without delay, the outbreak trend will be stabilized within November. Now, meanwhile, health authorities are investigating how the virus entered the country, including the possibility that infected mosquitoes were transported by air current or ships. And naturally, the average wholesale price of Korean beef has risen by more than 10% in the past week. As of yesterday, the wholesale price of Korean beef was 20,053 won per kilogram, up 13.1% compared to a week ago before the outbreak of the disease. Now, this is the first time in almost a month that the wholesale price of Korean beef has exceeded 20,000 won per kilogram, and the consumer price per kilogram increased 8.1% as well, now costing 100,251. Yeah, as if uh, Hanu prices weren't expensive enough, it's already uh, making things uh, worse there. And uh, concerning the fact that I believe uh, read a report earlier this week, they're saying if they vaccinate the cattle, uh, it takes about uh, three weeks for it to mm -hmm. form antibodies. And so they're trying to get this done uh, as soon as possible here. Well, since we've talked about prices going up, let's talk about inflation because South Korea's inflation expectations rebounded this month, breaking the eight-month downward streak amid uh, rising volatility from the Israel-Hamas conflict. Tana, let's uh, break down the numbers for us. Sure. South Korea's inflation expectations rebounded this month, breaking the downward trend that lasted for eight months this year. According to the Bank of Korea, inflation expectations, which measures the outlook among consumers over headline inflation for the next 12 months, stood at 3.4% in October, up 
1.1 percentage point from the previous month. After peaking at 4% in February, inflation expectations continue to slow, standing at 3.7% in April, 3.5% in May, and then slipping to 3.3% in July. The figure remained at 3.3% in August and September uh, before rebounding this month. The turnaround was attributed to growing expectations for higher public utility fees and rising prices of oil products. Consumer prices gained 3.7% in September from a year earlier, posting a higher gain from the previous month's 3.4%. The headline inflation topped the central bank's midterm inflation target of 2% for 30 months in a row. Uh, The Composite Consumer Sentiment Index, which gauges the sentiment of consumers over the economic situation, declined 1.6 points over the month to 98.1 in October, continuing a downward trend for the third straight month. A figure higher than 100 means optimists outnumber pessimists. The drop was attributed to geopolitical risks stemming from the Hamas-Israel conflict, as well as the war in Ukraine prolonged monetary tightening, and higher for longer inflation that continued to dampen investment and consumption. Uh, The results were based on a survey conducted from uh, October 10th to the 17th on some 2,300 households. It's just never-ending, right? I mean, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic seems to be somewhat of a thing of the past, and so we thought maybe uh, inflation will start settling down and that the war in Ukraine uh, start raising the, the consumer prices again. And uh, what, when we started thinking maybe that's going to settle down, we have the Israel-Hamas uh, conflict going on. And all the while, uh, we, of course, have been, because the inflation levels remain high, a lot of these central banks are still uh, sort of hawkish on the monetary stances there with the U.S. Fed now kind of going from, well, there's probably going to be no more uh, hikes in interest rates to now there probably is going to be another interest rate hike, uh, not in November, I believe. I think November FOMC meeting, uh, they're probably going to freeze it. But December, there's another one, which in case, what's the uh, the South Korean Central Bank going to do in response? And so ultimately, not only do we have high inflation, but borrowing rates are very high. And as you know, with South Korea rating having very, very high household debt, it's going to be uh, a huge issue for all of us here. Speaking of conflicts, let's do talk about the ongoing armed conflict in the Middle East between Israel and Hamas. Unfortunately, the death toll continues to rise uh, since the outbreak of the conflict back on October 7th. Uh, vast majority being civilians and innocent children. Hejang, let's get the latest figures on the death toll. With the conflict that began with the surprise attack by the Hamas on October 7th, tensions are reaching a new high as Israel continues its massive airstrikes on the Hamas-ruled Palestinian territory of Gaza and prepares for a grand war vowing to annihilate the Hamas. The death toll on both sides has continued to rise since the conflict broke out, with the vast majority reportedly being civilian victims. Gaza's Ministry of Health said on Tuesday local time that the cumulative death toll on the Palestinian side is 5,791, which of 2,360 are children. UNICEF also reported that 5,364 children are wounded in Gaza, which means that an average of 400 children were killed or wounded every day over the course of 18 days since the conflict. 
in the Palestinian territories west of the Jordan River, where tensions have been rising. 28 children were reportedly killed and at least 160 were injured. UNICEF added that more than 30 children have also been killed in Israel and dozens are being held hostage in Gaza. UNICEF said the situation in Gaza was deteriorating and the death toll would continue to rise if humanitarian aid, including food, water, medicine and fuel, was not allowed into the Strip, uh, calling for an immediate ceasefire and the release of hostages. The organization stressed that fuel is particularly important for running essential facilities such as hospitals and water pumping stations, noting that with more than 100 newborns in the neonatal intensive care unit, some of who rely on ventilators and incubators, access to electricity is a matter of life and death. Really, this uh, armed conflict uh, between the two sides, very, very frustrating, right? And uh, you could see here the frustration from the Palestinians because they're going, well, if it's a armed conflict with the Hamas, and we are not Hamas, why are there so much attacks? Why is there so much brutality? There was so much death amongst us people and not the Hamas. Now, Israel uh, continues to say that they are only attacking uh, Hamas facilities and so forth. But again, you see the number of uh, children dying from this conflict. And unfortunately, Palest Palestine happens to have a high percentage of their population's young children. We're not talking about like 17, 18 year olds. We're talking about young, young children here. And so really frustrating to see that this conflict has turned more towards the, the, the children and the civilians, the innocent civilians than the Hamas, although there are reports that, uh, you know, a number, I believe, uh, earlier today, Israel said that they had stopped a number of uh, uh, Hamas uh, divers from infiltrating into Israel, but still, too many children dying here. Uh, also, UN Chief Antonio Guterres addressing the UN Security Council on the escalating conflict between Hamas and Israel. Uh, some of his remarks uh, actually infuriated Israel. Not the first time, by the way, that Israel has been frustrated with some of the statements coming in from the UN and is now demanding that he resigns. Uh, Don, what's, what's this about? Well, during a UN Security Council meeting on the Israel-Hamas war held in New York on Tuesday local time, the UN Secretary General said that, quote unquote, it is important to recognize that the attacks by Hamas did not happen in a vacuum. Uh, it's an idiom used to emphasize that an event or a situation was not isolated or independent, but rather was influenced or shaped by external factors, circumstances, or events. So here, he was obviously referring to the influence of Israel and its past behaviors in this latest deadly clash uh, between Hamas and Israel. Guterres went on to say that the Palestinian people have been subjected to 56 years of suffocating occupation. They have seen their land steadily devoured by settlements and plagued by violence, their economy stifled, uh, their people displaced and their homes demolished. Their hopes for a political solution to their plight have been vanishing. And he also expressed deep concerns about the clear violations of international humanitarian law that were 
we're witnessing in Gaza, making clear that no party to an armed conflict is above international humanitarian law. Uh, But he did take a neutral stance uh, as well, saying that the grievances of the Palestinian people cannot justify the appalling attacks by Hamas. And those appalling attacks cannot justify the collective punishment of the Palestinian people. He emphasized that Hamas's attacks on Israeli civilians, kidnappings, and missile attacks can never be justified. He also cautioned that the situation in the Middle East is growing more dire by the hour and that the Gaza conflict risks spiraling uh, throughout the region. Israel uh, was, of course, outraged by Guterres's comments. UN envoy um, Gilad Erdan called them shocking and demanded that the secretary general resign. He took to social media where he wrote that there is no justification or point in talking to those who show compassion for the most terrible atrocities committed against the citizens of Israel and the Jewish people, and that it's sad that a person with such views is the head of an organization that arose after the Holocaust. Israeli Foreign Minister Eli Cohen canceled a meeting with Guterres, while other top local officials labeled the UN chief a terror apologist. Meanwhile, the UN General Assembly will meet next week to discuss the conflict in Gaza. The Security Council has so far failed to agree on a resolution concerning the war, but a number of states, including Jordan on behalf of the Arab grouping, Russia and Syria, formally requested General Assembly President uh, Dennis Francis to schedule the meeting. Last week, the UN Security Council regularly divided on the Israeli-Palestinian issue, initially rejected a Russian draft resolution calling for a humanitarian pause. Only five of the 15 member states had supported this text which condemned all violence against civilians and all terrorist acts, but did not name Hamas, which was unacceptable to the United States, the United Kingdom, and France. I'm telling you, this issue is <laughs> the highest contested issue right now all over the world. I've, I've heard about teachers uh, fighting in the U.S. over this particular issue. I mean, a lot of people are talking about Guterres' uh, remarks, and they were saying that the majority of the people were saying that it was probably one of the more neutral uh, comments being made out because there was nothing not factual about what he had said. Uh, And it's also true, despite all the things that the Palestinian people had gone through for all those decades, it doesn't justify the Hamas attacks, does not justify. And then also, a lot of people are saying, well, sure, uh, Israel had all the rights to respond to the uh, Hamas attack, but others are then going, well, then why are you then targeting the civilians, right? Then not allowing uh, full-on flow of uh, humanitarian aid to go into Gaza. You're seeing thousands of children killed because of this conflict. Uh, fuel now being allowed in uh, and uh, only about uh, a handful of uh, trucks being handed in, despite the fact that the UN has come out saying that they need at least a th- 100 trucks per day uh, to help out the people. So again, it's it, it's a very difficult situation here and uh, many people very much divided on the matter and uh, UN envoy Gilad Erdin, not the first time that he has criticized a uh, member of the UN in regards to certain comments here. Uh, let's move on this time. Uh, to China, where uh, Beijing dismissed its defense minister, Li Xiangfu, and the country's foreign minister, Wang Yi, is set to travel to the United States later this week. 
we've uh, set to uh, meet with his uh, U.S. counterpart, Tony Blinken. Uh, both of these decisions can sort of be seen as an effort to repair uh, to two countries' strained ties amid the growing geopolitical crises. Uh, Hejan, let's get the latest on this. Sure. Foreign Minister Wang Yi will visit Washington from October 26th to the 28th and meet U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and President Joe Biden's National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan after Blinken and other top officials had traveled to Beijing in June. The Chinese Foreign Ministry said on Tuesday that it hopes to strengthen communication and dialogue with the U.S. and that they hope to expand practical cooperation. So Secretary Blinken and Director Wang Yi are set to discuss a range of bilateral, regional and global issues as a part of ongoing efforts to responsibly manage the U.S.-China relationship and to maintain open channels of communication. Now, meanwhile, China has officially sacked its defense minister, Li Xiangfu, who has been out of public view for almost two months without any explanation for his removal. Now, in 2018, when Li Xiangfu headed the equipment development arm of the military, he was sanctioned by the U.S. government over China's purchases of Russian combat aircraft and arms. But President Xi Jinping still appointed him as the defense minister in March, and China had cut off contacts with the U.S. military, demanding that sanctions be lifted against Li Xiangfu. So, Li was one of the most symbolic figures of the U.S. China conflict, as he was often cited as the reason for the delay in restoring the military communications, even as the U.S. and China revived a series of dialogue channels on diplomacy, economics, and global issues during this year. And as such, the dismissal of Li can be interpreted as removing one of the obstacles to the U.S.-China relations. While U.S. economic sanctions against China are still in place, which Beijing has repeatedly demanded be lifted, such change suggests that China is strongly pressured against the need to improve relations with the U.S. as it faces struggles in its economy, ranging from high unemployment, uh, crisis in real estate companies, and local government financing. And Wang Yi's trip takes place about three weeks ahead of the APEC summit in San Francisco, which leads to the expectations that a U.S.-China summit may take place on the sidelines of the APEC summit. I'm telling you, this uh, relationship between uh, China and the United States is very interesting because they're on a full-on trade war, and uh, later on it's gone too far and they realized that Look, no matter how it is, everything is connected. U.S. needs China. China needs U.S. And they can't stop fighting. But the only thing is they've gone so far with this fighting is that they can't both back down. <laughs> and so even when they, like the U.S., again, like Tony Blinken, we had uh, uh, Janet Yellen go into uh, Beijing. We had some of these top officials head over to Beijing. And then... It might look like the U.S. is kind of going, oh, man, you know, we've lost out on this and we're trying to strike a dialogue. And so in order to not sound weak, uh, they're, they're putting different restrictions in place to make it difficult at the same <laughs> time. And then China, of course, also needs the United States. And they're going, well, we're going to send Wang Yi over to the United States. But but we can't sound like we're, we can't look like we're weak. And so they'll put in like these restrictions in place for like U.S. goods. And so it's back and forth. But uh, hopefully there's some solution to this because it's getting ridiculous around. And speaking of turmoil, let's talk about the political turmoil over in Washington. Boy, uh, Republican Tom Emmer uh, dropped out of the race to become the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives only hours after being nominated. Donna, what's the latest on this? 
He is the third nominee who failed to secure enough support from their own party members to lead the chamber. Tom Emmer from Minnesota emerged as the party's pick in a series of secret internal ballots earlier on Tuesday. But more than 20 Republican lawmakers and former President Donald Trump said that they would not support him. The House has been without a speaker and has been unable to pass bills since Kevin McCarthy of California was ousted on October 3rd. The chaos continued as former President Trump looms large over the Republicans. He took his truth social platform to call Emmer a rhino, a Republican in name only, adding that he believed it would be a tragic mistake for Republicans to back Mr. Emmer. And in a desperate attempt to end chaos, Republican lawmakers nominated a new set of six candidates right away Tuesday evening. Byron Donalds of Florida, Chuck Fleischman of Tennessee, Mark Green also of Tennessee, Kevin Hearn of Oklahoma, Mike Johnson of Louisiana, and Roger Williams of Texas. And Mike Johnson clinched the nomination for House Speaker just hours after Emmer's abrupt withdrawal. Johnson of Louisiana, a lower-ranked member of the House GOP leadership team, becomes the fourth Republican nominee after Emmer and the others who fell short in what local news outlets are calling almost absurd cycle of political infighting since Kevin McCarthy's ouster as GOP factions battle uh, for power. A nominee must secure 217 votes on the House floor to be elected, which has proved difficult. There are just 221 Republicans in the House, and conservative and moderate factions have been sharply divided over who should be the leader after Kevin McCarthy uh, was ousted. The House is scheduled to reconvene on Wednesday local time. I mean, we saw, uh, you know, foreshadowing from the get-go, right? Uh, even when they were trying to vote in for uh, Kevin McCarthy as the Speaker of the House, uh, there was already a rift amongst the Republicans, and it took so many different votes for him to be finally passed through and for him to go. And then towards the end, the, the guy that's getting the most flack out of all this, it's uh, Matt Gates. Of uh, He's the, uh, the lawmaker in Florida who pushed for the uh, vote to oust uh, Kevin McCarthy, and then once they voted to oust Kevin McCarthy, and by the way, Kevin McCarthy, I think he w kind of hoped that the, the Democrats were going to vote against the ousting of him because kind of helped out with uh, the, the, the avoiding the government shutdown, and there was no one to kind of go after Kevin McCarthy, and they're going, Matt Gates, you had no plans after this, why'd you even push for this, and it caused more turmoil, and there's because there's the the far right Republicans and the, the central Republicans and uh, the so-called rhinos that the Republicans call there's, there's so much turmoil even amongst the the Republicans. It's going to get interesting next year, by the way, when, once the uh, well later this year, right? That once the, the primaries uh, begin and so forth. Nevertheless, guys, I uh, thank you very much for your reports. Have a safe rest of your night, and we'll see you guys again. Thank, thank you. you. You can listen to Korea Now with me, SJ Lee, by downloading the Arirang Radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com. So make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Korea time.